Welcome to the Diversity Remix. I'm Charlie Echeverry. And I'm Jesus Chavez. So why do different sets of rules and a whole different calculus seem to exist for diversity-owned businesses when you compare them to the mainstream? What happens when schooling is not just about school, but about daycare? And what are the implications? And should businesses be protected from COVID-based lawsuits in the same way that Good Samaritan laws protect people? This and a number of other very provocative questions we'll be looking at in this episode. Jesus, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad, glad to be here. Glad to have this conversation. A lot to talk about. There is a um, ton. Very uh, sort of two-sided discussions as it relates to all of this. I mean, I think part of the reason why this is a pretty interesting topic is the fact that there is no real clear answer, uh, as we'll get into. So we've all heard the expression, right? We're all in this together. And I think recently we had one of our colleagues um, throw out a pretty compelling insight that the storm may be the same, but we're in kind of different boats, depending on, on who yeah. we are. So that, that was kind of an interesting entree for this discussion. What, what exactly do we mean by that? Yeah, so I think maybe the, the best way to describe it uh, as it relates to, and of course, we're talking about the pandemic, right? And all of the impact that that's caused, both from a medical health standpoint across the nation and world for that matter, and also specifically for the economy, for business. And, and obviously, we're going to focus a lot about sort of related to the reopening process that we've been going through, the, the start stops, fall starts to some extent, but the obviously eventual restart that has to happen. Uh, but maybe a, a good place to start is to actually talk about some of the disparities that this pandemic has caused, specifically with, within black and brown people. Yeah, um, let's do it. So looking at, a, we're looking at a New York Times article that was published on July 5th, right? So about a month ago, a little more than a month ago. Uh, and it relates to coronavirus, coronavirus cases per every 10,000 people. Amongst Latinos, they're about 3.2 times higher to get infected uh, with coronavirus than white non-Hispanics. And then for blacks, it's about 2.7 times higher. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I think part of it is definitely driven by where they live, primarily in big cities, which is where the cities that have been mostly impacted at higher rates as it relates to the, the pandemic. Uh, more multi-generational homes, right? So you have families that are living with parents, grandparents, et cetera. Um, also more likely to work in essential jobs or jobs that can't just be easily done from home. Yeah. And then you also have all of the underlying health conditions that obviously is a big, big factor as it relates to how impacted people are when they actually do catch the And disease. we know about some of those, right? For African-Americans and for Hispanics, yeah. higher propensity for diabetes. Diabetes is a huge, for Latinos is a huge one, huge right? Huge thing. Um, high blood, blood, pressure. blood pressure. I mean, there's a number Obesity. of things that are both cultural, that some of it is based on diet, of course. Uh, a whole set of reasons. Yeah, and and um, I think that that obviously has got to be a very important part of the um, equation is what what the starting point is, right, in terms of yeah. what the baseline is, I guess. You know, and, the, and then part of the, I think the biggest challenge with this is as we think about this pandemic and those disparities, those disparities actually have become worse. And especially for a group, when we talk about black and brown people that are sort of are being hit on both sides. Mm-hmm. One, they're more likely to get sick. Uh, they're also more likely to get to actually have uh, a more fatal outcome if they get sick. And then second, they're also, have, they're also a lot more likely to not have the option to just not work, to sort of wait it out, yeah. right? And yeah. that thing is that dynamic that we really want to talk about um, as it relates to, especially as, as things start to reopen up. What percentage of the world do you think understands the thing that you just shared about the propensity of getting sick, giving it to others and dying is just greater? Like, what percentage do you think that awareness really exists out there? I don't know. I think, I mean, this is where you have a lot lot of very different camps uh, out there because you have people that really think about this this, uh, pandemic as 
kind of like the flu, maybe like a hyper version of the flu or, or yeah. a, a stronger version of the flu. Um, I think in part because some people have gotten and recovered, it also makes it feel that is maybe more beatable and less of an issue. Uh, I think one of the things that's been really interesting, especially you think about in the last, you know, last month or so, as we've gotten into June, July, and we talk about this, is that now the sort of the proximity of the of the pandemic has gotten a lot closer. I think probably all of us know at least one or two people that yeah, the have six gone degrees sick. of COVID. That's right. So it it definitely even for those of us that were that felt that we were aware, but just not in sort of in our inner circles, that seems to now be. You know, it's, and, it's, it's here now. And right? by the way, on that point, I don't know if you wanted to share anything personal on your side, but I'll share two, you know, close to me because they're interesting that they represent kind of opposite ends of the spectrum. So my brother-in-law who lives in Northern Florida got uh, COVID. He's in his mid thirties, super fit guy. He's a, a paramedic fireman and he was obviously quarantined and had to go through all of that. But his experience with COVID was on a scale of one to 10, he gave it a 1.5 in terms of severity. Now, I have a cousin that I just mentioned to you earlier, a very dear cousin of mine, who's actually a religious monk who lives in Brazil, and he just got it, and he's been laid up for eight days, um, and, you know, coagulation, an inability to move. Now, he's in his mid-40s, obviously a big difference there in terms of age, but is otherwise very healthy, you know what I mean? And so yeah, yeah. The, this, the spectrum of just the two people that I know that are in my family that got it right. is like night and day. Yeah, and I think that's what makes it really scary. On my side, a couple of close calls, people obviously that thought they had it, um, and a couple of more extended family that that has come come out positive, but at least for, for now have been able to recover pretty pretty easily. So this um, this idea of um, you know this disparity uh, came up for me pretty recently, and I'd love to just chat a little bit about this because you and I both know a couple of uh, opportunity zone. Uh, co-working spaces or uh, share spaces, however you want to look at them. And, you know, those those co-working spaces, and they're both in Los Angeles, are minority-owned and run, and which is part of the reason we know them, right? And we've actually officed with them and spent time with them. But um, both of those uh, those businesses were shut, essentially. They were shut beginning in late March and have not yet reopened. And um, you know, I know for a fact that uh, a business like WeWork never actually really closed down, right? They had yeah. a, a whole back and forth situation on, on you know, guidelines and, and new procedures and all of that. And obviously, they're dealing with uh, issues even before coronavirus with new management and all kinds of, uh, of, of different things. But, uh, you know, those guys, you know, open for business. And so I kind of took it upon myself to see if I could go all the way and actually buy a, a, a WeWork space, you know, a co-working space from one of these big mainstream, yeah. uh, you know, outfits. And I got all the way to the shopping cart, so I knew that it actually worked. And so I, I checked in with the minority-run ones and I asked them, I said, you know, hey, what's going on? How come they can open and you can't? And the answers that we got have been pretty interesting. You know, let's get into the answers, but I think one of the, the first items that sort of that this points to is the fact that even when you have one set of rules – how those rules get interpreted, enforced, and what level of risk a business can take on varies dramatically depending on who you are, who you service, which is another big, big issue, and how much backing you have, legal, financial, et cetera, to be able to, to make your case. So before we get into like the, the specific yeah. reasons, what I thought was interesting is we actually went and looked at what were the, spe the specific orders, and we're talking in this case specifically to the state of California as it relates to stay at home. Right. And specifically for offices. So just going right off the 
uh, COVID-19 California Gov website. As it relates to offices, what they define as being able to open is basically offices that have critical infrastructures, they can open indoors or outdoors. For those that are non-critical infrastructure, they can do outdoors only. So on that point alone, obviously it's, by the way, that's it. That's all that's that's listed, right? Yeah. Uh, you can see how there could be a lot of room for interpretation. What actually makes something critical? My guess in the in case of WeWork, sure. and I think we, we actually read something, I believe you brought it up before, where obviously how they're interpreting their services as being critical for the companies that they support in their, obviously, real estate operations. Um, but you can immediately see how that creates just, just an opportunity for people to have a very different point of view as to how to be able to interpret that, which then leads to the bigger issue, right? Which the bigger issue being is that if we were when we start talking about some of these diverse-owned businesses and potentially these, these opportunity zones, the amount of financial support, legal support that they do have to both take on the risk of possible lawsuit if something happens or be able to fight an order if they get pushed and, and get, get reclosed down. Obviously, their, their access to those resources is significantly smaller than someone like a WeWork or, or these much larger mainstream operations. So that, I think, plays a pretty big factor in even considering taking a risk, taking a gamble of reopening operations. I mean, at the end of the day, though, this is part of the d- disparity that exists, right? I mean, if you think about it, the first point is, how do you define these terms? Well, if I have a whole stack of attorneys that I can bring to bear on what is critical, what is essential, what is this, I'm already starting at a point of significantly more advantage than somebody who doesn't have those resources, right? Because, yeah, to your point, Marcelo Claret, who is the, the COO of SoftBank and, I guess, chairman of of WeWork, which is you know one of their investments, uh, a couple of months ago came out with his explanation, which was, listen, we are the kind of foundation of these businesses that are critical, that are essential. If we shut down, they shut down. So we can't shut down because if we do, they do. That, uh, by the way, I'm not even saying that's wrong. I, I, I kind of agree with that, but my point is that... That will applies across the board, though. That's what I'm saying. It will, share spaces. Well, it should apply across the board, yeah. and clearly it doesn't, right? And even you know, we in a couple of these uh, minority-owned share spaces, we've talked to the CEOs, right? We've talked to the founders, and they're like, hey, listen, we got cleaning service people that are here. We've got people that are in the medical services that are officing here, and, and yet they didn't open or didn't have the resources to do that as quickly as, say, some of these big mainstream. Now, again, there's some nuance in the decision because they also brought up the fact that, um, you know, opportunity zones, by definition, are in in areas of the city that, you know, have historically been disadvantaged. And by virtue of that, they tend to be more black and brown, which going to the top of the the, the podcast, those are the the communities that have the most propensity to get sick. So we actually heard from one of the the CEOs that, you know what, even if I could, I, I hesitate to open because I don't want to impact my community. And that was kind of an interesting moment. So there's yeah. this like resources, but then there's this additional layer of like, hey, we haven't, you know, we're not in Playa Vista. We're not in, you know, whatever, Tribeca or, you know, you name it, right? We're in a we're in a neighborhood that actually is more greatly impacted and we have to be more careful as a result of that. And that's, I mean, when when I heard that as well, it, it really kind of blew me away. I hadn't really thought about that. And as, as sort of tuned in as I like to be in terms of yeah. the issues and how they impact this community, it was really eye-opening, right? Because if you think about what we said earlier about the sort of, infectious rate that happens with Latinos and, and, and blacks relative to to, uh, to white people, that obviously has to play a factor. Also, this whole notion of having multi-generational people within a, within a home True. plays a major, major role. So you have this situation where you have these businesses that are already potentially in a more challenged financial position that have higher hurdles to be able to 
open up if they're trying to stay true to their mission and serve as a community that they're serving that happens to be more black brown who as we mentioned is already more impacted and just don't have the backing to take on the risk that is required to operate in this in this moment knowing that something can go wrong that someone can get sick as a matter of fact it's probably a really high likelihood someone will get sick and what happens if they do and that's the other advantage, right, or disadvantage, I guess. If you're running a business that's on a razor-thin margin and by kind of reopening, it really means you're signing up to lose money, you may be better off not opening, right, for at least the time being. And that's another part of the calculus, which, again, I don't think the big companies, namely the share space ones we've been talking about, have to consider to such a degree. I'm not saying they don't have to worry about their shareholders or making money. They do. But they they can weight things out to a completely different degree. You know, we've been walking up and down, you know, the the, the neighborhoods that, that around these opportunity zones, and you see just one after the other, you know, closed, shuttered businesses left and right. And it's like, yeah. it's a real thing. And, and obviously, that what you we hear more in the headlines are the big organizations going into chapter 11 you know bankruptcy but what you don't see as much um or at least i haven't is all of these stories of these these little shops that are, are now gone under and are never going to come back we see it over and over again right so i think it creates this really interesting dynamic is that you're having a situation that there is pretty high risk as it relates to personal health and being open and being to operate and then you have sort of that choice between a rock and a hard place for many of these entrepreneurs that is either that or a complete financial disaster that they may not be able to recover from. Yeah. Because they just don't have the margins, the, <clears throat> the financial backing to be able to just write it out. And the same holds true for parents, by the way, right? So like to get into get into a little bit of that, which kind of opens up a, a bit of one, a different topic or a different question is there's implications to parents um, you know, all over the place with the idea of how quickly we open and what that actually means, right? And it's a, it's a bit of a spectrum. You've got obviously a completely different socioeconomic reality for some folks who may be looking at new modalities of how to teach their kids when school doesn't reopen in the fall, and in person at least. And you have other sets of parents where that's not an option at all. And school is, yeah, a place where kids learn, but it's also a place that enables me to go and actually make money and have an income, right? And so by taking away the physical aspect of school, you, you, there's implications galore in that decision. It's the, the school one is a really complicated issue uh, in my mind. I, I have very mixed feelings about the entire thing because I definitely understand the perspective of the role that school plays for a lot of families, especially black and brown families, not just as a source of education, but as a source of, of sustainability. Everything from being able to create the opportunity for parents to go to work because they have daycare, literally. And also for those that are dependent on schools to provide part of the food programs and, and keeping their kids healthy, safe, uh, nourished, uh, that a lot of families are struggling with, right? So it, it, that's a really big challenge. You know, we, we actually looked at, and especially now, because you're you are seeing across the country, some, some school districts aren't open, right? Uh, so I thought it'd be worthwhile maybe to share some of the yeah. stats that we've seen. So actually, as a matter of fact, earlier today, there was an article that was published on CNN, and it talked about sort of the impact that we're seeing already as it relates to school openings that has primarily happened already in about five states, and we're sort of going into week two. This is about, you know, about week two of, of them opening. We're already seeing that there's been more than 2,000 students, teachers, and staff members across those five states that have, been, uh, that have now been quarantined after at least 230 positive uh, coronavirus cases were reported with kids, right, or kids and or staff, by the way. Uh, the other thing that was interesting stat, I think, to bring up is that over the last four weeks, 
there has been about a 90% increase in COVID-19 cases among children. Uh, that was according to a new analysis by the American Academy of Pediatrics and the Children's Hospital Association uh, that I believe updates that weekly. And broader than that, as you think about sort of where, what the current status is of school reopenings, as of early August, or I guess last week, 17 of the, of the country's 20 largest school districts, which total more than 4 million students, already were planning to start the year with remote learning until these conditions improve. And, and uh, according to data you know, tracked by Education Week magazine, which is a massive, massive decision, impacts millions yeah. of families, not just the students directly, but you get to think about all the sort of the multiplier effect between everyone's involved in those homes, et cetera. It's a, it's a major issue, but... Um, yeah, let's talk about that because obviously there's I, a lot of implications both, both on both on both sides. I definitely want to get into the, um, the, you know, even on that article you just read, like until this situation, uh, whatever, you know, X, Y, Z. I definitely want to get into the idea of when is that until? Because to me, the until is almost directly related to a vaccine. And I feel that this is now taking on a very kind of legalistic and more um, kind of CYA, you know, like people covering themselves than it is about a real kind of humanitarian care for people. And I think we're beginning to see that shift mm -hmm. as people consider the implications of what happens if one athlete dies in the Big Ten? Well, there's a reason to cancel the college football season. What happens if one athlete dies in the NFL or what have, or a coach or what have you? And of course, those are legit questions. But the answer, um, you know, outside of COVID is, I mean, not to be crude, but the answer is kind of life happens. People get sick, people die, people get the flu, people get in traffic accidents, they may have problems with drugs. Like that happens all throughout, you know, professional athletics and other places. So my sense is that the only thing that really is that moment where there's an all clear ends up being this vaccine. And until then, that creates a whole host of issues. Um, yeah, I mean, you're right about that. I think the challenge that we have here has been the lack of consistency in either following the rules, maybe even creating the rules for what it actually takes to open up, right? So to that point, we've had a lot of issues in a number of different states as it relates to the reopening process, right? Initially, as was recommended by the task force that the White House put together, they were using CDC guidelines for what it took to reopen basically states, right? Which is a combination of active cases with the transmission rate, if I'm correct, not, it's supposed to be under 5%. Uh, but there was a number of rules that were sort of put in place that if you hit these different metrics, then you could sort of successfully start to reopen up. The challenge was that that really wasn't really followed very well, right? You had a lot of states that started opening up pretty quickly. Georgia is a good example of that. Mm -hmm. uh, Florida never really closed down until they sort of started having a lot more problems. Um, it was a combination of, of bad communication that basically mixed messaging. States that ultimately could decide one way or the other what they wanted to do or not do. That increased the situation. I think now we're gone to the point that because of lack of consistent guidelines and consistent application against those guidelines, now you have a case where it's like either all in, you have to open no matter what, or we can't open, we can't open no matter what. And you have now these two camps that are basically in complete opposite spectrum. I think the other thing that is worth talking about as part of the challenge of trying to open up, the, one of the biggest groups that have come out with a very, very strong voice are the teachers themselves, right? Teachers because unions too. So much, yeah, exactly, yeah. right? So much had been made about the death rates associated with children as being one of the reasons, and by that by, I mean low death rate amongst children, as being one of the reasons why it was considered, and I do air quotes, pretty safe to open up these schools, right? But the challenge becomes that if, if kids get sick, they can get adults sick, 
And if adults get sick, then you start to have to worry about their death rates, right? Yeah. So the teachers themselves within that environment inside of the school are at most risk. And then we're talk- when, we, when we start bringing it back to the stats that we talked about earlier with black and brown communities, kids that live in these multi-generational homes, that's a massive issue, right? So to me, that's Everything- part, of the, part of, the, of, the, of the challenge that you see. Everything's been politicized, though. I mean, everything is being politicized here. Um, the teacher's concern, you know, has now, and again, I don't know because I'm not a scholar in this area of, you know, teachers' unions. I understand that there are kind of national bodies and they're more like regional bodies yeah. or state bodies. But, you know, when you look at the teachers' union here in Los Angeles, um, at least based on some information from a local uh, affiliate who uh, you know interviewed one of these representatives, that the teachers union in LA was making was sort of tacking on demands to some of these concerns that you articulated, stuff that some people would say has like nothing to do with what we're talking about here, right? So, um, like for instance, in this in this article, implementation of a moratorium on private schools defunding police departments, uh, increasing taxes, implementation of Medicare for all, passing the HEROES Act, all of these things that were sort of tacked on on a list of demands that said, which the principal thing was, keep us safe and our kids safe from COVID. So it's like it's become politicized because if those things are legit, and by the way, this is age old kind of government stuff, right? It's like we want to pass a bill, we tack on a thousand different things to it, we spend six months arguing, and eventually we kind of meet in the middle somewhere. So I get that to some degree, but I think at this moment, all of these things just become fodder to get people pissed off on one side or the other. And it's not productive. I mean, let's let's be honest. When when I hear your list off that those those demands, to your point, they really have nothing to do with keeping the schools themselves safe, right, and opening safely. So. I honestly think that those kind of demands are just ridiculous in the situation. And this is coming from someone that is pretty liberal and probably for a lot of the things you just mentioned. But in this form, through that using the opening of schools as the, the sort of the leverage vehicle to yeah. try to push all those things that really are unrelated, is it, it makes no sense. Now, on the other side of that, I'll give you the, the other extreme. And one of the examples that I think of first and foremost is actually Florida. Florida, yeah. Right. So you had, I believe it was at the beginning of July. Uh, Governor DeSantis basically put together a, um, uh, a, you know, a, an executive order that schools had to fully reopen for in-person instruction five days a week, right? This was like right at the beginning of July. And if we think about it in the context of what has happened in Florida during that time period, you, this was right when it was starting to really go up into the number of cases. Um, that's still pretty low in Florida, but they started to rise up pretty quickly. But it was that sort of, executive order, like no matter what, regardless of what's happening with the disease currently in my state, we're going to open, right? And I think to me is like, that's a, a sort of the other extreme what I was talking about, which is this, this notion that it doesn't matter, we're going to open anyways. And then the same, it, cre- it creates that same kind of viral, uh, um, that same kind of reaction to something that just doesn't feel very well thought out. And of course, what has happened since in Florida is now you have the unions who have sued the state. And they're arguing, by the way, that it's a violation to, to the Florida Constitution that is actually that requires safety and security in any kind of public school. So their, their argument is that is that based on the current dynamics that are happening in, in Florida, uh, it's just not safe to open. Now, if we take it back to what were some of the CDC guidelines of having to have less than a 5% transmission rate, Florida was like at 17% transmission rate. Like it was not in a good place. And it has actually has gotten worse since the time that they announced it. It's, it's starting to come down some now, but but still. It's like that moment of, of pushing for this in a manner that just seems honestly just irresponsible. 
yeah. or push that kind of directive without considering at all what is happening outside. Like the schools don't operate in a vacuum, right? It's like I, yeah. even if the kids get sick, yeah. like, they don't just stay in the, in the schools. Like they have to go of course, to their homes. They go home. Yeah. And, and a lot of them are from the category that we described they, at the top. Right. Which means right. they're going home maybe to multi-generational households and, and all that stuff. But I agree with you that that's how it seems, but things are not always as they seem. All right, let's hear it. Let's so hear the other side of this. I actually went... Um, which leads to a whole nother point, but I actually went to go look at what the governor actually said. And this is from a press release yesterday, which addresses some of this. Now, I don't know all the ins and outs, so I yeah. may be missing something, but I think it's an important thing in general, um, as we've talked about before, to go to the sources as much as possible, like go to what actually people said, rather than what's said about what they said. Um, which excludes like 90% of all media today at this point. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but I'm going to start doing that. And I don't know. Here's a quote from, uh, from Governor DeSantis from yesterday in the press releases he said. He said, quote, For the past few weeks, Florida has seen sustained declines in new cases, visits to the ER for COVID-related illnesses, and the number of COVID-positive uh, patients who are currently hospitalized. We're not yet where we need to be, but we're encouraged by the trends. Yet today, this was yesterday, yet today, we all of a sudden saw a massive increase in new cases in Miami-Dade County, which had seen steady improvement for the last two weeks. Was this a sudden surge in new infections? No. As it turns out, it was a data dump from a new private lab that included results from as far back as June. The data was stale. It was not indicative of current trends, much less a record day of fresh infections in Miami. Stale test results shouldn't be used by policymakers to determine the way forward for students, parents, workers, and businesses in the here and now. So that's what Governor DeSantis said. Now, again, do we have then the actual results from this private lab that dumped it? I don't. So I don't yeah, know how yeah. accurate that is. But at least what he's suggesting is that the indications that Florida is going through you know, a negative trend are actually driven by this uh, kind of data dump based on results that were pretty dated back to June. And that's causing this false positive, which then people are latching on to saying, how dare you open up the schools or do whatever. That's, that's what yeah, I mean. And I think that's the, but see that, that to me is the, is part of the challenge that we're talking about here, right? Because it's, it's really operating under, under a, a mindset of questioning all the data, figuring out where all the asterisks are in the data yeah. to be able to justify your case. Right. I'm not saying he's wrong. He's probably, he's, look, let's, let's, let's assume he's entirely right in what he just said, right? The reality situation on July 6th, when he made the, the, the announcement of schools opening four or five days in person was two days after Florida had hit its highest new case total of 11,500 new cases, mm -hmm. right? That was two days before. And to still go forward, about a week later, it was already at 15,300 cases. Right now, the current caseload has dropped. It was uh, is eighty one hundred cases what it is right now per day right? The challenge that you have as well is that the number of deaths now they're like at over two hundred. I think two seventy six was two days ago. So even if there's some data there is there that is not correct, the part that I have a hard time understanding is why make that case at the beginning of July that no matter what you're going to open when there is a changing dynamics that are happening within your state. Rising cases, maybe the, for, let's forget whether it's 11,500 11, or if it's still is 10,000. Yeah. There seems to be an uptick in both cases and deaths. Why make that, my, that case now? And I'll give it to you more in a, in a very personal example. So my daughter is, and I won't mention what the school is, but she is going to a, to a private school. And over the last few weeks, we've gone a number of different emails, basically where the school is describing the approach that it wants to take 
to open up the school and specifically in all the steps that it's taking to try to legally challenge the state of California to get an exception to be able to open. Now, I can't tell you the number of, of emails that are well thought out, paragraphs upon paragraphs of emails, all describing the process they're taking to basically fight the fight to open the schools. During the same X number of weeks, you know what I didn't ever see? I actually never saw from them. Any kind of actual thoughtful plan of, let's say we don't win the pushback and get the exception. How are we going to actually handle remote learning? And that's the part where I just don't understand the, the, the obsession of trying to fight that fight without what at least seems like, at least from, from my perspective as a parent, that there isn't enough, the same amount of thought, effort, uh, plan is being really developed for what the reality and, actually is right yeah. now. And there we agree, right? If you're planning for a picnic, you bring a, an umbrella or a raincoat just in case, right? It's like not giving any thought to what the alternative could be and putting all of your eggs in that basket, all of your energy into trying to get something to open, if that's truly the case, seems misguided. This actually reminds me of a comment that... Um, uh, Joe Rogan has said very recently about this whole Corona thing is like he doesn't hear any emphasis on like this time is a time to learn nutrition. This time is a time to learn about vitamin D and drinking water. Yeah. We hear all about this will kill you. Wear a mask, a clean everything, right? So, but it does seem to make sense reasonably or rationally make sense that you should also be using this time to focus on health. So should it be that, hey, we really want to open because reason A, you know, a B, and C. However, if we don't, here's what the, the approach needs to be for our, our, uh, our kind of remote learning or distance learning. I think that some of the arguments on the reasons to open school, though, are very compelling. I think the increase in... Um, you know, child uh, um, abuse cases, the increase in, you know, hotline calls, suicide prevention calls, all of those things are very compelling reasons. We always kind of think about, you know, perhaps the idyllic scenarios we have for ourselves about, you know, our, our kids, thank God, are not raised in, 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 in difficult environments, right, by and large. Uh, but obviously our kids are not maybe representative of everybody out there. And it's like, yeah. you know, there's very real reasons. Uh, you know, I'll share one quick story, which I've touched on before, but I think is exactly emblematic of this. And that's a family right now of six from, Hondur from Honduras that I'm uh, trying to help get permanent housing. Their house burned down two months ago. Or right before, right, right before summer started, actually, I don't know exactly the date, but a couple months ago, their house burned down. Their kids were on a Zoom call with a teacher, and the teacher on the Zoom call saw the house burning down and told him, "You got to get out of there." The dad was at work because he has to work; like it's a cash living. Uh, actually, the parents are undocumented, so he's you know he's trying to yeah. make money. Mom was you know next door or somewhere else trying to you know doing something for the house. The kids were alone with the oldest brother. And luckily, all four kids got out of the house before that thing went up in flames in two seconds, right? And so it really made me think, you know, where would these kids normally be? They'd be in school. They'd be in school. Would that have house burned down? Well, it wouldn't have because it turns out the kids were actually ended up, they were playing with some leftovers from the 4th of July, right? So they, that house probably wouldn't have burned down. The, the, the family wouldn't be displaced. Most important of all, the kids wouldn't have been endangered, right? At least if they were in school. I know that that's a focus group of one, or maybe a focus group of six in this case, but still, it's a really eye-opening case of like, wow, you know what? If I don't have options to put my kids in a, a, a homeschool pod or take them to some you know, very expensive daycare, which by the way, these things are charging up to $1,700 a week now, right? Because there's so much demand. Then what options do I have? Like, I'm screwed. I got it. This is what I have to do. Yeah. And I think even if you think about the case that you just described as a to your point, a, a sample data set of one or an extreme case, 
I think what what you don't talk about in that story, but I'm sure is is prevalent there, is really the lack of at home infrastructure environment to have any kind of real successful or even mediocre remote learning experience, right? How many, if you have multiple kids that need to be on Zoom classes at the same time, do you have the four or five laptops required to support that? No. Right? Do you have even the space in your home for the kid to be able to sit there, focus? Do you have the luxury of having a parent who was there on them, making sure that they're engaged, tuned in, that they're not you know, nope. distracted? You, you're missing all of that. Right. And, and that's the part where I do have very mixed feelings and I understand that point. Right. And it's not just about what I think about my daughter's own experience and, and how to do it there. But the but when I think of the alternative, I can't I have a hard time justifying that the alternative is a better solution right now because the impact of that of that same situation, the same family is I also wouldn't want to lose part of a generation because of 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 trying to solve for that for kids to, you know, to be in school right now. And the advocates, and I don't feel strongly enough in the other direction to argue the case too strongly, but the advocates in the other direction would say we're losing a generation already. We're losing a generation of kids who are depressed, who are at home, who are taking drugs more than they have, who are committing suicide more than they already were, which is already a devastating figure for Gen Z as it is, um, or even younger, Gen Alpha, sorry. Um, so they would say it's happening anyway. And being in school on balance is safer. That's what some people would say. And again, I don't feel, I would argue the point. I don't know how strongly I feel about it. I understand the mixed situation. I think the reality of it is, is that when it comes to, in particular, you know, the diverse audiences that we spend most of our time thinking about, this is a real question of what the balance is if you can't have your kids in school physically. I think there's a real cost there that is different from other, other groups that's, that's worth studying. I think whether you're for the idea of opening schools or not opening schools, I think the part that we could probably agree and should agree on is the fact that we should not be using our children as political leverage to make a point. And to even to start with these positions that just sound so unreasonable to begin with to get political points, yeah. right? Or to get other things agreed to that really have nothing to do with that child's both safety and education. And I think that's the part that I definitely get very frustrated about and completely agree with. Whether it's a local teachers union having a kind of stance and adding things into that, into their position that really have nothing to do with it. Or as I was saying earlier, sort of the example that I have that I mentioned about a governor taking a position to be able to fit into a narrative of, of everything opening up in spite of like the house is burning literally yeah. and we're sitting down to have a, a cup of tea. Like that sort of, those two examples to me are just are just terrible. Well, everything has been politicized again and uh, so true is it in the world of business, right? Um, our our kind of last provocative question for this episode is around this, I mean, there's kind of no way, other way to call it, but almost like a good Samaritan law for business that, um, and we'll, we'll cover the specifics in a second, but essentially, a release a business from, uh, you know, lawsuit potential um, in case that they're serving a customer and that customer ends up getting sick, right? And there's some nuance in the language, but the basic premise is like, look, we got to reopen. Like, we got to feed people. We got to get back to work again. To your point about it's super binary. We just have to open. We just have to open. And when we do, somebody may get sick. And when they get sick, we don't want to get sued. And like something around that. Now, that's maybe taking a bit of the negative uh, attitude. Looking at it from the Good Samaritan angle, 
in the same way, and for those that don't know, the Good Samaritan laws basically are if somebody's choking in a restaurant and you go up and give them the Heimlich maneuver and you break one of their ribs, but you're doing it in an effort to save them, you can't be held liable, right? There's Good Samaritan laws all over the country in a bunch of different states uh, for that purpose. So to look at it from that standpoint for the case of business, I can make a case like, hey, you know what? It is it is unfair to uniquely hold a particular business unless you can prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt and they were negligent in what they were doing. It's really hard to say that you should be able to financially benefit from suing that particular person because you went and shopped at their store, right? So I can look at it from that perspective as well, but break it down for us yeah, in terms I think of maybe, what the stats maybe, are. I definitely have a lot of thoughts as it relates to maybe the other side of that, of that argument. But let's start with what the actual um, bill in, in language is uh, was being proposed. So this is called the Safe to Work Act. Now, this is part of basically what was the last congressional uh, response to the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. It was a bill that was introduced by Republicans in the Senate. It includes this, this, uh, you know, this language around the Safe to Work Act. And what it does is basically three main things. One is it, it funnels all coronavirus-related war claims into federal courts until 2024. There's like an additional language there, but, but it basically it's 2024. The second thing that it does, it really significantly raises the bar for lawsuits. A little bit what you were saying, right? So plaintiffs really need to prove that their illness resulted from gross negligence or willful misconduct on the part of the employer, not just carelessness or a lack of resources like protective equipment, which that... A lot rests on that definition right there. That. That's out of everything. I think that's the one that I have a massive issue with. And the, the, thir the third thing is that it caps liability to $50,000, right? Which is also a big, big issue. So I'll pause there. There's a lot more about the law and how it's being proposed and where it's in that process, road to executive order. But I think for the purpose of our conversation, let's yeah. just focus on the value of having law in place, policy in place that basically limits the liability that a business will have and be able to open up. Now, so yeah. to make the argument for it, right? The argument for it is that we have a lot of businesses that are literally sitting like right now, literally what we're talking about earlier about some of these work share spaces in at-risk communities that are trying to figure out, can we open, should we open, and then what happens if someone gets sued? So a law like this would protect the business like that. Protect them from getting, so, so at least sort of minimizing some of the liability and risk that's already going to be there by, by opening up. And the result would probably be more businesses want to be, be open than not because they feel that at least that part of the, of the equation is a little bit more certain in terms of how that would operate. That's the good side of it, right? The, the bad side of it is that when you think about that language specifically, that it has to be gross negligence. I mean, the second I hear gross negligence, the like, bar is super high. But yeah, my little, you know, my spidey sense, my spidey sense just pop up because that is a really high bar, especially when compared to carelessness or just lack of resources, right? And when you think about it in the context that we've had, that's actually been a massive issue for even hospitals having PPE equipment available for them to operate, right? You could sort of multiply it against schools and, and, and business across the board. It becomes a thing that I don't know what kind of case you po you can possibly make where anyone is, is, is held liable. And the reality is, you know, it creates a dynamic where people could be irresponsible and just call it negligence. Yeah. And that's the, I think that's the challenge. I think it's, a, well, it's an issue for employees. It's an issue for customers. Mm -hmm. It's part of the reason why a number of people have come out against that, that basically that policy including some of the sports leagues, by the way, for that specific reason, right, is they feel it does not protect the employee in the process, especially for businesses that don't fall under the, the um, like being essential, basically an essential business. The critical or essential business, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, from my standpoint, there's, you know, I, I look at this like any kind of bill or negotiation that's done. It's almost like it gets loaded, just like we talked about earlier, it gets loaded with stuff that you assume you may lose in the negotiation. And that's kind of how I see this as being written. So one example is um, the cap on liability to $50,000. If you're only allowing people to sue or proposing to allow people only to sue if it's gross negligence, then why would you cap the liability? It's, I could, it's a double incentive to not sue. That's my point. So I see one of those as being just a throwaway. So if they ended up in the negotiation with, we'll lose the liability, we'll just keep the gross negligence, I see it as a negotiating tactic is how I see it. I think that's how lawmakers do this stuff anymore. I mean, I would argue that I don't think anybody's introduced a bill legitimately that actually contained the only things they want. I think they add right. a bunch of crap because they know they're going to lose some in the what negotiation. What are the throwaways, right? The, the ones throwaways. That are be, yeah, and I think yeah. the cap liability is a throwaway because I think if you can, if, if somebody were to say, yeah, that's grossly negligent, then grossly negligent behavior requires a grossly negligent, a grossly negligent, negligent uh, type of solution, right, which would be a, a monetary sum greater than $50,000. So I think you could, you know, definitely lose that. I do think that, um, and by the way, this whole gross negligence and carelessness, we learned all about that during Hillary Clinton and James Comey and the whole email thing, because that entire thing hung on that word. Was it careless or was it negligent? And mm -hmm. the FBI determined it was careless. So there was nothing, there was no case to bring, yeah. right? So it's a huge, yeah, but huge plenty issue. of examples where you can plenty. go... Plenty. One way or the other with some of these things. And I think that's what, that's what makes it such a a hard law in my mind to uh, be able to support. It is. And the other thing is, is like these things, and again, this is a, a little bit of a bug in, 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 you know, in my craw or whatever, even though I tend to be, um, you know, much more conservative on these issues. But I just feel that these kind of things, you know, really impact and favor like enormous businesses and you know, who can stand to be without, who can, who can survive these issues. And it doesn't necessarily, um, you know, impact the real needs of small and medium sized businesses where, again, predominantly, you know, black and brown entrepreneurs and business owners tend to reside, right? So, like, I, I feel that these things are, they're good conversations and they're interesting, but I don't know necessarily that they really impact that, that world as much as, as much as we think that they do. Yeah, I think the, the thing about it, maybe another way to sort of think about this issue is that I know for the most, for the, for the average person that as they think about this sort of dynamic of lawsuits, right? I think most of us don't like the idea of lawsuits and, and, and definitely operating in a society that feels to be way too litigious to begin with. But as it relates to business operating, it's a great tool to get businesses to pay attention. Without an actual real threat of losing real money, not 50 grand, because to your point, when you start talking about real businesses, real fines, it's really get it's really hard to get any business to really, really care. Even when there is like literal death, right? You, you've seen it in a couple of different in a bunch of different sectors, automotive, kind of across the board. Without the real threat of having the ability to to go after an organization that was negligent that is operating for profit, not because of survival, as we're talking about in some of these cases, some of the small entrepreneurs. Yeah, they're just of, trying to make a buck. They're just trying to hit their quarterly their revenue quarterly numbers, right? Yeah. I, I think it, you're creating the wrong kind of incentive. And, and to your point, I think the people that will benefit are going to be the big companies. The reality the small companies that are struggling to operate right now, this is going to make zero difference. It's gonna make sense because just by, by, by having the rules in place, the COVID, make it a COVID-approved venue, with separation that you need six masks, feet with masks, everything. cleaning. Yeah. Many businesses, they can't afford to do that. They can't get enough people indoor. 
to drive enough revenue and they can't just pay the cost. So those companies, those small small shops are already screwed anyway. Yeah. So you're not really helping them. Who you are helping is your big national retailers, kind of the, the big companies that don't need the financial help. Let's be honest about that, right? For Absolutely. those that are already going bankrupt, they were already in business models that were failing already. This just accelerated the, 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 the situation. And that's where, again, the spirit of this thing is something that appeals to me despite the fact of how it's written and who it will ultimately benefit. But the spirit of it in the sense of we need to open up, we need to provide and feed, for, feed our families and, and provide for people in our communities. And to have the sword of Damocles hanging over our head that if somebody gets sick, then I can basically lose everything I've ever worked for. I'm, I am very, um, you know, uh, sensitive to that kind of sentiment. I don't think this law, at least what we've covered today, does really much to address that necessarily. Yeah. But, um, but I do understand that sentiment. I think a lot of people do. But like everything else we've talked about, things have been politicized. Yeah, for sure. So, Jesus, what's um, what's our bottom line on this stuff, right? We started off by talking about the fact that the storm is the same, but we're in kind of different boats. And we've talked about a few different instances of that. What What's a takeaway that we can uh, leave folks with on this topic? You know, I have to say for this one, I, I'm really struggling um, in terms of what the clear takeaway is. I think one of the, the ways that I think about this sort of broad topic of opening up and, and sort of to your point, not being in the same or being in different boats is really how much impact black and brown communities are, are having in this moment and how they're being basically hurt on all ends, right? Whether it's uh, through health, whether it's financially, and the what still to me seems to be a lack of focus on addressing that problem at the individual and more problematic in trying to fix problems with institutions. And that's what I think I have a really hard hard time with and an issue with. Um, and also what also seems to be a very unfair sort of dynamic of where companies that literally operate in the exact same industry yep. can operate the same way. So this false notion that people may have that, oh, well, we have a policy that's or, or we have a law that is applied to everyone. Like, what are you talking about? Like, it's, it's it's sort of fair game for everyone. It's not. It's a lot more to consider when you are a small entrepreneur, when you operate in the communities that are being most, more, more impacted. And I think any kind of thoughtful policy program, way to help, has to be able to account for those nuanced issues that are happening with those communities. And that's where I think a lot of these things are, are missing. So I'm not sure if it's so much of a takeaway, but... When I think about what's wrong with a lot of these problems, that's sort of the first thing that comes to mind. It is not addressing the most vulnerable people that are most impacted by all of it. Whether we do something or don't do something. Whether we focus on people staying at home or focus on getting people to work. And I think ultimately that's what, what, what is needed for us to, to really have a better dynamic, a better environment for people to be able to succeed and get past and survive this moment. And I think that's that's what's missing. So it's less of a takeaway as a guess thoughts of, of how I think about this issue. But I think that's actually powerful just to help people have the awareness that these situations exist, right? The awareness of the fact that 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 these communities are more impacted and the kind of calculus that they have to go through to actually, you know, do business day to day. I think that awareness alone is something meaningful for people to have. And I think the other thing is that, you know, whether you agree with the things that we've talked about in terms of what's happening in Florida or with the teachers unions or with this new, uh, you know, CARES Act um, provision that's being proposed, the thing that I take away from all of this is 
awareness is the first step and then taking a step in action is the other. And that action to me is very focused on how you can have a relationship with somebody at a very personal level. I think that we're, we're looking to solve a lot of things that are big with big solutions, which I can understand in one sense, but counterintuitively, oftentimes the solve is just getting closer to things yourself, personally getting involved, becoming, yes, aware, but then doing something in your own community with somebody that you can actually impact and taking that action and that step yourself. I think that's something that, you know, this whole coronavirus and COVID thing has caused me to, to focus on a lot is taking that individual step to, to do something and not just counting on the mechanisms of government or new laws or new things to solve all of those of those issues for all the reasons we've talked about. These are very imperfect solutions, right? Irrespective of how you view them or what side of the spectrum you're on, we kind of all agree they're they're a little bit wonky, right? All of these things. And so I think that you know, we, we, we have to use this as an opportunity to try to perfect these big solves, but also try to do something ourselves on a personal level. And just to add to what you just said, I think the reality is mostly solutions that are proposed are primarily driven by trying to make a political stance and secondarily whether they actually benefit the individual. And that's part of the problem. Absolutely. Well said. Well, that's our show for today. Same storm, different boats. What you can do to, to take action is you can share this podcast, you can uh, amplify it, you can give us suggestions on topics you want to talk about, but we want to talk about issues that are at the intersection of diversity, of business, and of America, and we're not afraid of controversy. So let us hear it, let us hear your comments, and we thank you for listening. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Diversity Remix, please remember, first of all, to subscribe and help us to spread the word. Tell your friends, family, coworkers, and give us a five-star review. We're available on Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else you get your listening fix. And lastly, please remember to stop by blackbrown.us, the creator of this podcast, and take a look at our work and our approach at the intersection of diversity and business. The Diversity Remix is produced by Leo Gomez with production services by Jose Manuel Durquidi and Luis Diego Carranza and our friends at Juan Diego Network. The Diversity Remix is a production of Black Brown. <laughs>